This episode was brought to you by State Farm. Buying a house in 2024 can be something extremely joyful, but also extremely stressful when you think about all the paperwork that you have to file. But like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's the phrase that will help you feel good knowing that you have people who care to help you file a claim or find the coverage for the things that you want to protect. After an accident, you may be worried. Who do I call? What do you do next? I drive peacefully knowing that I have people who have my back. In reality, finding good insurance doesn't have to be something that is complicated to you. State Farm has options to fit your unique needs, which means you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, or reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistant tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I'm a small business owner, and I believe that this is a great tool for other small business owners. In small businesses, you need to create a team, and if you're starting by yourself, Constant Contact can be the team that you need. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support, plus everything's backed by the 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Putting into place support systems that ensure the emotional connections of individuals, really adapting the way in which we live life to be more focused on reinforcing our mutual dependency and not seeing that as a bad thing, but seeing that as a good thing and that we need each other to get through this. Here's what we don't want. We don't want the old economy. It is clear that if you're Hispanic in America, you do not want the old economy. If you're somebody who wants to be entrepreneurial and is coming from a household without the means of privilege, you do not want the old economy. You want to move and leapfrog to a new kind of structure. If the world wakes up and says now, well, look, three billion people not having hand washing their own home is something that is a threat to life and livelihood everywhere. We've got to sort it out. That will be a serious silver lining. This is the Global Goals Cast, the podcast that shows how we can change the world. In this episode, building back from the pandemic. This is a crisis we cannot afford to waste. We can build a better world, a better economy, a better society. And better means safer too. Stopping the pandemic and building a more equitable world are not two separate ideas. Think about it. Equity means better access to healthcare. It means digital access to online learning. It means better foods, safer workplace, even shorter commutes. All the elements to a better life. Claudia, you said it. That is exactly what this episode is about. Building Back Better includes holding the line against coronavirus. So we have brought in some very smart people to help us tell the story. The New York Health Commissioner, Oxyrus Barbeau, will join us from the front lines of the pandemic. Jack Hittery, tech entrepreneur, will offer three specific ideas to improve work, education, and health, while reducing our vulnerability to infection. And as the virus continues to spread around the world, David Miliband will talk about protecting the most vulnerable. 
and bringing her sharp thinking is one of the podcast's best friends, our colleague and friend from the Financial Times, the inventor and editor of Moral Money, Gillian Tett. Gillian, welcome. Great to be on the show. And I'm particularly delighted to be on the show because this is a theme which is passionate um, or very dear to my heart and the heart of the Financial Times, which is we've had this crisis, it tipped us into shock. We're now starting to, in some ways, adapt to it. But the key question going forward is indeed, how do we go forward and build back better and not merely survive, but thrive in the future? Gillian, you have been writing brilliantly in the FT about this, so we can't wait to discuss, which we will, but first this. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by MasterCard. MasterCard is dedicated to building an inclusive world in which the digital economy works for everyone, everywhere. We raised $10,000 within the first 20 minutes of the campaign being live, and then we tied that to a MasterCard solution that enabled disbursements of those donations to reach the most needy in the ecosystem. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and Universal Production Music, and to BSR, working with business to create a just and sustainable world. Welcome back. So pleased to be joined by Gillian Ted of the Financial Times. Gillian, I know that you at Moral Money and all your Financial Times colleagues have been thinking hard about the path forward, about the new agenda. So tell us how things will change and how that change can be shaped for the better. Well, thank you, Claudia. And what we've been thinking about on Moral Money is very much what we call the ESG, Environmental Social Governance Platform. And all three of those elements are going to change in the future. And it's a way to frame how we look at the post-COVID-19 world. If you think about the environmental aspect, some people say, well, maybe the shock of COVID-19 means that people won't have the energy to have any focus on the environment going forward. We think it's quite the reverse because actually we've woken up and learned in the crisis that there are serious systemic issues where science can shed light on our challenges which cannot be ignored. And that applies to the medical world, it applies to the environmental issues too. And the fact that is that the global economy is interconnected, it is prone to contagion, and again that matters as much for environment as it does for the medical risks. On the S factor, one of the key questions going forward is going to be very much the social issues and how companies deal with their staff. And there's a real awareness that companies which are not treating staff well, employees well, companies which are essentially ignoring suppliers, ignoring the wider environment, will probably face some element of consumer, if not governmental censure going forward. And on the G factor, the question about how companies are running themselves, whether the governance is just for shareholders or a wider sense of stakeholders, again, is likely to become increasingly important going forward. Hold that thought. We're going to return to it. First, I want to share my conversation with the public health official who's perhaps closer than anyone to the center of this pandemic, the health commissioner of New York City, Dr. Oxyris Barbeau. You've just been, or you're still going through, in fact, one of the most difficult health crises in human history. And you're in one of the cities that has been hit the hardest by this pandemic. So I wonder, what lessons do you see now that you've learned for public health? It's been an unprecedented time. Clearly, no one would ever predicted that we would have been in the situation that we are in. And... You know, what I've been telling my staff is that our preparedness training has really paid off. All of the years of training for this, it's now game day, as they say. And, you know, the reality is that we are learning every day that no matter how much you train, there are always curveballs that are going to be thrown your way. There are always going to be aspects of a scenario that you could have never really taken into account. And I think one of the things about this pandemic that characterizes it is that it has not been a straight shot. Every turn has had complications that we would have never anticipated. And so 
the lessons learned here are it's not only about the expertise and the skill set, which of course is critical in terms of data analysis, in terms of laboratory capacity, community engagement, health system support, communications, and of course mental health, but it's also about how we apply this expertise through an equity lens, through an approach that builds relationships of trust with community members, and that above all incorporates adaptability. What are some of those curveballs you mentioned that the virus threw? Oh my gosh, where to begin, right? I mean, every single day we are learning more and more about how this virus behaves. And that has been, I think, the biggest challenge to communicate to New Yorkers on a daily basis. This is where we are right now. But it may be that the guidance that I'm giving you can change tomorrow. And so part of those curveballs have been adapting to communicating to New Yorkers that says our guidance right now is based on the best evidence that we have, but moving forward, we may need to adapt it. So for example, you know, the latest curveball Uh, Up until now, the majority of people that have been affected by COVID have been adults, 80% of whom do well, 20% need more care. And it's only been, I would say, in the last maybe five days that we have really shed light on how children are being affected by COVID-19 and presenting with symptoms consistent with a fairly rare condition in pediatrics, Kawasaki's disease, that affects the cardiovascular system, but that now seems to be potentially one of the atypical ways in which this virus is manifesting. And so that's just the latest curveball that's been thrown our way. So I wonder... Given the fact that the virus is still mutating or that there are still lessons being learned in terms of public health, do you think there's also lessons that you can already point to as we start to look at building back? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the biggest things that we learned early on and that we put into practice is the degree to which some of our data was incomplete. And the reasons for it being incomplete were because the healthcare delivery systems, other parts of our healthcare system didn't necessarily see the value of incorporating those data. And I'm talking specifically about race and ethnicity indicators. And so without having had that emphasis on our part of leading this response through an equity lens, we would have never really pushed to have our partners uh, incorporate race and ethnicity into that data, which would have then, I think, significantly delayed our response to communities of color that are being disproportionately affected by this virus. Specifically, we have black and brown communities here in New York City that are seeing rates of death at twice that of the white population. And that's a big concern. And why do you think that is? I think it has to do with longstanding inequities that contribute to things such as inadequate housing, so that when we give someone advice to isolate at home, because that's the best way they're going to prevent transmitting the virus, they're not able to do that in a safe way. They've got uh, overcrowded housing, and so you have multi-generational families, and so someone who has the illness may have it very mildly, but if they live with an elder, then that puts that person at risk. Other things also is the concentration of chronic diseases in communities that have had poor access to healthy foods, fresh fruits and vegetables, exercise opportunities, economic opportunities. I mean, really a a multitude of inequities laid on top of one another and, and manifesting in the most acute of ways during a pandemic, which then result in just, 
you know, a human toll that I don't think any of us could have anticipated. So what do you think we need to be doing now to protect ourselves until there's a vaccine? The important thing here is that apart from the basic preventive measures that will continue for who knows how long, meaning, you know, adherence to hand hygiene, adherence to staying home and not going to work if you're sick, I think what we need to really look forward to and start planning now is putting into place support systems that ensure the emotional connections of individuals, really adapting the way in which we live life to be more focused on reinforcing our mutual dependency and not seeing that as a bad thing, but seeing that as a good thing and that we need each other to get through this. And it's not we need each other here just in New York City, but we need each other throughout the world to get through this. And that we are only as healthy as our most challenged residents and ensuring that we've got stable housing, economic supports to make it easy for easier rather for people to endure isolation and quarantine because it's inevitable that we're going to have a second wave. And so I think we need to not only prepare for that eventuality, but really look towards seeing this as an opportunity to reimagine what it means to live in a world where we support people's total health and looking at housing, education, economic support as part of what drives health. So are there any specific policies that you would advocate in terms of supporting that whole person's experience as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, you know, interestingly, I have been really pushing my staff to think about in their work, you know, what are the things that we are asking to suspend in in people's best interests so that we can get through this pandemic? And, you know, it's... It's re-looking at how we distribute, for example, uh, medication to help support people in their recovery. Why is it that we have, you know, methadone distribution clinics? Why isn't it that we can have methadone delivered to people's homes? Rethinking, you know, what's the value of mass incarceration? All of these huge societal issues that really have a bright light shown on them now through this pandemic, I think gives us an opportunity to interrogate things that we have taken for granted as this is the way it is, to really question how does it really contribute to our health, our community's health, our country's health. Wow, that's a big thought. And I love the fact that Barbot said something that I've been thinking about a lot about how incomplete is the data that we have about people. For example, in the case of Hispanics, it's incredible to see the how inequalities and inequities are just like showing up every time more. We're highlighting this virus and this pandemic is just highlighting all these inequalities. It's exacerbating the issues that were out there, but were not as visible for everybody. And I do think that it is a time for all of us to start scratching and just bringing them to light. For example, in the case of Hispanics, what she was talking about, it's 34% of Hispanics that are the mortality rate of New York. We're 18% of the population, but 34% of the mortality rate in New York City. 16% of Hispanics have not access to terms to be working from home or educating from home. If you don't have data enough, you would actually just like think through and say like, yeah, it's the lack of internet. So let's look at internet access for everybody in New York. But as a fact, the more that you look into things, we found out the problem in New York is that the kids that cannot go to school is the lack of Routers. So we are all human is going to be working through the Hispanic Star to provide 10,000 routers to kids that don't have it. But it is super important. And in this time of crisis, we tend to forget things such as the census. So, for example, Idi and Jillian, what we've been doing 
is doing help by distributing food, 10,000 despensas and food baskets in the south of Texas, but at the same time, making sure that we do that when people register to the census. We just have to be counted. We have to have data that is complete to make sure that people in policy can take those decisions. Gillian, I do not want to go back to the same. I think you raise a very good point here because the pandemic on one level is a great leveller. We're all human. We can all get exposed to the virus and we can all suffer terribly. At another level, the fact we've all been forced to start relying on digital technology, those of us who are lucky enough to have access to it, again, the internet can be a great leveller and connect the world. But the reality is that the way it's played out has actually in many ways been as much about a great divider and reinforced hierarchies and inequalities rather than levelled us. And it's become a bit like a sort of television with the contrast buttons turned up in that people who are already in a good position have emerged relatively better off and people who are not have not. And as you say, Claudia, I think the issue of um, digital access, internet access is absolutely critical right now because if you cannot get internet access, you can't do your job from home, you can't do your learning from home. And that's going to exacerbate inequalities going forward. One of the very interesting developments in this crisis is the rise of what you might call reverse innovation, i.e. people learning lessons from so-called developing markets and bringing them back to the so-called developed world, although many of those distinctions are breaking down right now. So there are programs like One Laptop Per Child, um, which have been used very successfully in places like Uruguay to distribute cheap, ultra-cheap versions of laptops and the equipment you need to connect with them to large numbers of households, which one could very usefully borrow and and reproduce in a country like America. Um, There are many other examples of reverse innovation in the medical field as well about how to get cheap, low-cost vaccines or other crucial medical innovations and try and use techniques we've already seen in places like Africa and bring them back to America. That's the kind of thinking we're going to have to embrace and very much part of this idea that we are indeed um, all part of one world and we need to look out for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, Claudia, Jillian, you could feel just a tinge of regret in some of the commissioner's words. It was like she was saying, if only we had gotten this all done in the past, perhaps there was also some frustration. Just as we were saying goodbye, we asked how well she thought global communications had gone in fighting this pandemic. And her answer was diplomatic, but very clear. Within the US, she speaks directly with other health commissioners and they keep each other informed. But there's nothing quite like that to keep warnings and advice moving easily between big cities around the world. Urgent information first flows up to national governments. To the degree that health commissioners of key cities around the world could have a network convening, maybe as a part of, you know, the UN or some other body, I think would be a useful way to do real-time sharing, both in what we're currently saying, peacetime and wartime. Right, this pandemic response is wartime, but to the extent that we can be brought together in other times, I think would be useful. So Jillian, any reflection on that from you? Yeah, I think she raises three very important points. Um, Firstly, there is a desperate need right now for more global communication um, and learnings, um, not just at the national level, where there are bodies like the United Nations or WHO, Um, which are under attack right now, but do provide some kind of state-to-state communication. But there needs to be much more communication at the lower municipal level because one impact of this crisis has been that people are trusting local organs of government much more than national or supranational. And many of them are providing the most effective responses. Even before the COVID-19 crisis hit, there was a growing discussion amongst city mayors around the world about whether there should or could be more networks to connect them all. And, you know, some of them are joking that it's time for different mayors, in particularly in a country like America, to start creating their own foreign policy and dealing with each other directly. But I think this is going to accelerate it. So you're going to see much more of this kind of communication and, frankly, many more of these networks. Um, which brings me on to my last point, which is that, thankfully, there are these networks 
up and running already to a degree. Um, Mayor Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York himself, has been very active in creating these global city networks. And so I suspect that groups like the WHO ought to be putting as much emphasis on activating those and working with those as they are on the actual national governments. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more. And I think that that is part of what we w we should be thinking about, the new architecture of networking in our global goalscast post-pandemic to-do list is coming together. More communications about local health office officials do not settle for the way things were. And in a moment, three specific ideas for better workplace, education and healthcare from Jack Hidari from Google X. But first, here's Amy Neal from our sponsor, MasterCard. For MasterCard, partnership has always been a really important part of the way that we do business. We have partners and stakeholders of all guises right across the globe, and that really informed our thinking for why we set up the StartPath program six years ago. Why is StartPath relevant now? Well, one of the reasons is we have about 200 startups that we've worked with over the past six years and with whom we've built enduring relationships. You know, one of the things that has meant in terms of the crisis is that we have this amazing portfolio of companies that we're able to engage very, very quickly to solve some major challenges. A great example is the city of LA in the US reached out to MasterCard to see if we could help them to solve challenges around COVID. In particular, they were interested in setting up a giving campaign, a donations campaign. Because of our relationship with US-based startup Goodworld, we were very quickly, over the space of eight days, able to stand up a giving campaign. So citizens within the city of LA were able to donate using Goodworld's platform, which enables donations over social media, and MasterCard's donations platform. And we raised $10,000 within the first 20 minutes of the campaign being live. And then we tied that to a MasterCard solution that enabled disbursements of those donations to reach the most needy in the ecosystem. Thank you, Amy Neal from our sponsor, MasterCard. Clara, you have someone really interesting for us now. Yes, I love that idea of interrogating things so that we just don't accept them as they are. So here's one, a great interrogator. His name is Jack Hidari. He runs artificial intelligence for X, Google X, and he's a tech entrepreneur and a philanthropist. And he has been joining me in doing a number of things for Hispanics, including giving a webinar for the Hispanic Response and Recovery Plan the other day. And here are some of his insights. Many of the politicians are talking about, let's reopen the economy, let's reopen the economy. And of course, we do want to have a robust economy going forward as um, uh we go past some of the peaks of COVID. But the question is, what economy do we want? What structure do we want? What society uh, do we want? And here's what we don't want. We don't want the old economy. Uh, it is clear that if you're Hispanic in America, you do not want the old economy. Uh, if you're somebody who wants to be entrepreneurial and uh, is coming from uh, a household without the means of privilege, you do not want the old economy. You want to move and leapfrog to a new kind of structure. And this opportunity of COVID gives us that uh, roadmap. And so the old economy was characterized by um, high pollution, low quality of life, uh, you know, unequal access to education, unequal access to healthcare. Daily norms have been changed, and this is the opportunity to really rethink the status quo. Uh, and so right now, the perceived trade-off is, as you hear from the politicians, is Do we favor public health and protecting everyone right now from COVID, or do we open up the economy? This is the binary choice that we're being given. We actually beg to differ. We think actually there's another way. The numbers are very clear. We have to go to a better economy, a better structure, if we want to address issues like this. This is the time to do it. Jack gave us three ideas as examples of a better way to reopen the economy. Idea number one. We call it 10-minute hubs or distributed hubs. We want hubs of work that are no more than 10 minutes from your house, no more than 10-minute commutes. The average commute in America now each way is one hour. One hour to work, one hour back. 
This destroys and really harms the ability to have good quality of life in terms of spending time with your children, spending good quality time with your parents, relatives, and others, spending quality time with your own family, uh, being able to go to the gym and exercise. These are all impacted by people spending two hours in a car, not to mention which, inhaling the air pollution on the way. We don't have to have that going forward. We've seen now with telecommuting that that can work. Is the future just everyone staying home and telecommuting? No, we don't believe so. What we believe is that HQ can be there for those people who live very close to HQ of that company. Let's say it's Citibank in Midtown Manhattan, JP Morgan in Midtown Manhattan. Great if you live within 10, 15 minutes and you want to pop over uh, and work in the headquarters, great. But if you live in Hoboken, New Jersey, Westchester, Long Island City, Long Island, any of these surrounding areas, stay where you are. We'll create a hub for you of 100 people working for your company. It'll be managed, say, by a third party. Uh, this could be a way, for example, for WeWork to regenerate itself. I just spoke to WeWork this week and they said, in fact, yes, they're going after this business model now to not keep opening WeWorks in downtown center cities. That's where they are today, but shut those down and actually open up in the periphery to enable Citibank to say to all its employees who do not live right next to its uh, head office, we're going to create turnkey offices for you. Idea number two is about education. We want to take laid off workers and empower them as freelancers and provide them with services. Small businesses that provide freelancers who are former laid off people uh, already the layoffs are starting to happen all across the board. Small businesses, medium sized businesses, all kinds of businesses. We want to empower them and we can start new companies to empower the freelancers who are the former laid off workers. That leads to online education. In the old economy of six months ago, an online degree was seen as the stepchild of a real degree, quote unquote, real degree, right? The quality of online education has increased rapidly in the last five years, but the, the, the HR folks have not caught up with that trend. Let's work with CEOs, let's work with heads of HR, let's work with community organizations that, to convince them that the online version is actually preferred over sitting in a classroom. We'd rather have people stay in the workforce, continue to earn money for their families, and get their degree. That is actually a preferred way to go rather than the other way. I'm now focused mainly on professional development. When you're in the workforce already, you're 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, you want to retool, you want to upskill. We have to help, particularly the Hispanic community, upskill so that they do not bear a greater brunt of the layoffs that are about to come. 2021 will be massive, massive layoffs, and the end of 2020 will be massive layoffs. And we need to help people upskill today, right now, right here. Let's get them analytics skills. Analytics is the number one requested skill in the United States of America today by companies. And this is Jack Heather's idea number three. Let's now talk about telemedicine. This is one of the key areas of inequality in America, access to good healthcare. And we're not going to solve it in the old way. Having doctor's offices, having people go to the emergency room because they don't have a local doctor, a good doctor, and the emergency room becomes their primary care doctor, which is the case in many communities of color. This is not a great way to go forward with healthcare. We want to really stop the entire system of healthcare, which just happened now because of COVID, reassess and emerge with a different kind of healthcare system. One of the reasons why Elmhurst Hospital in Queens is overrun compared to other hospitals is that the communities around Elmhurst did not have good primary care physicians and access to great health care in their primary care setting. And so they rush to the hospital with any kind of um, uh, symptoms because they don't know. They're, they don't have a, a structure to lean on. And so Elmhurst had to provide that structure in addition to providing structure for the very, very seriously ill on ventilators and so forth. The community can receive better health care for less by using simple digital tools and avoiding the emergency room. This would mean that a single mom who has two kids and suddenly their kid is having a fever, she can quickly find out very immediately what exactly the temperature is and get this information to a teledoctor, get that doctor online within 30 minutes at 2 a.m., at 3 a.m., at 1 a.m., whatever the time is that the kid is sick, monitor that, that child and allow the doctor to tell her in, in the next 10, 15, 10, 15 minutes exactly what may be going on with that child, do a number of other tests that can be done in the home 
even small blood tests. If you see the glucometer over here, um, if uh, there's a family member, for example, who might have glucose issues, prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, you could do these quick tests, transmit those to the doctor to see if maybe there's an issue there. And you can even do EKG. If someone's having potential heart issues, obviously if it's a heart attack, you need to call the ambulance, you need to go to the hospital. But somebody who has say some history of heart issues and wanna see if there's an arrhythmia or other kinds of issues, instead of again, making appointments, taking time, going to doctor's offices, this can be done clinical grade, and all these are FDA approved already. These are small startups that have done great jobs of making this happen, but they're in the margin of healthcare system. Let's bring them out to be the core of how we do healthcare going forward, not at the margin. Jack Hillary is on a campaign. Instead of going back to an old idea of normal, he wants to capture the urgency of now to come back better. In other words, as I said earlier, do not waste the crisis and take this as an opportunity. A lot of people are joining us in this movement to reopen the economy to a better one, a smarter one, a more equitable one, with better access to education, more equal access to healthcare. These are the kinds of things that we can now do, but we only have about 30 to 60 days to convince leadership to do that. You will hear more about Jack Hillary's campaign. As I mentioned, we're partnering with him to reinvent those rules for women, particularly, and for Hispanics. Now, Edie, we've been pretty US-focused in this episode, or at least the global north, rich world focus, which I get. But as you pointed out in our last episode, and as Gillian mentioned, there are parts of the world where the pandemic is just getting started. So I am glad you brought that up. Like everyone else, I have spent my fair share of time on Zoom calls recently. I joined one put out by our friends at Tortoise, where the editor, our friend James Harding, was interviewing David Miliband, CEO of the International Rescue Committee. He was a guest in our first season, remember, Claudia? Yes, of course. And he is so focused on some of the poorest and most strife-torn places on Earth. Coronavirus only adds to the deep troubles. Right. So I asked him about what Emma Ngaiza had told us from Kenya in our last episode, how the push for better sanitary conditions to curb COVID was also reducing other intestinal illnesses and diarrhea. Building back better really meant building things that should have happened long ago. Was that a silver lining to coronavirus? Well, it's a great point. And necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, that's the the truth. So we're using radio now for um, remote education. We are um, using motorbike riders to go and do child protection uh, work. We're using social media to take on fake news, which just in parentheses is a huge problem in the places that we uh, work. We're running our finance department without without anyone having to go into an office in New York. So there's all sorts of um, innovation that is coming out of this, uh, forced innovation, which is a good thing. And um, my friend Peter Hyman has started a website uh, about education in uh, advanced countries called uh, Learning from Lockdown. And our mindset is all about learning from lockdown. We've got to do the prevention. We've got to do the health response. We've got to deal with the immediate collateral damage, which frankly is appalling in, in terms of um, violence against women and girls, which is a massive thing in the place we work. We've got to adapt our programs, like with the radio example I gave you. And then fifthly, we've got to learn the right lessons. And the lesson is that when you have such huge holes in domestic and global safety nets, you're courting disaster. And I tell you, living in the US, you see what having holes in the, in the safety net means. Undocumented workers don't dare go to uh, the hospital in case they get, have to give their name and address and get registered and handed over to the immigration authorities. And that fuels a, a really dangerous cycle. In the global system, three billion people have no access to hand washing in their own home. And so that lesson learning, I think, has to draw from the real examples of the, of the kind that you're, that you're giving. I mean, the examples I've given us are not quite silver linings in the same sort of way, but if the world wakes up and says now, well, look, three billion people not having hand washing in their own home is something that is a threat to life and livelihood everywhere, and we've got to sort it out, that will be a serious silver lining. That's a wrap. Let's talk about this. So we got three different ideas for building back better. So what do you think, Gillian? I think it's very inspiring. 
And I think if you want to understand how inspiring this can be, it's worth going back to one of the times that the West fought an actual war as opposed to a medical war, which was World War II. And after World War II, when the soldiers went back to their homes, both in America and the UK, or the, the Allied soldiers, um, there was a presumption amongst many world leaders that they'd go back and they'd simply vote to support the people who'd been running the war campaign and everything would go back as it was before. In fact, what happened in the UK was an election where they voted out the old government and brought in a new government that then introduced some sweeping changes to the welfare system and created the national health system, which in many ways is something that today Britain is very proud of. In the US, the returning soldiers were part of a new wave that fought for, for example, extraordinary educational opportunities through the GI Bill, which essentially enhanced social mobility for many years to come in America as people went to college for the first time. And those are just two tiny examples of what can happen after a crisis. The Build Back Better phrase was actually created after World War II. And I think the fact that so many world leaders are now turning to variants of that now shows that crisis and war of any sort can be both a devastating shock that causes untold human misery and pain, but it can also be an effort to disrupt the system and create a fresh opportunity. So let's hope that even amid this horrific pain, there are leaders with the imagination to seize on the second opportunity. So not every idea that we heard in this episode is a new one, Gillian, and they're all newly urgent because they can curb the virus and help build back better. But how do you think we sort ideas from somebody who's talking their own book or promoting an idea that they had before the virus, their agenda, and sort those from the ones that are actually quite innovative or will really work? Well, I think one of the themes that you've very much highlighted on this podcast is equity. So it's going to be extremely important to not just have equity of distributional resources, which are going to be very important in the coming weeks when we come to issues like food and medicine and tests and ultimately a vaccine, but also equity of access to information and healthcare. But also going forward, equity of voice in terms of how we fashion this new world, because we can't afford to just have the rich essentially control innovation and ideas and proposals for solutions. Um, we need to have what's been called reverse innovation, which is learning from the developed world. We need to make sure that the ideas we're listening to are those that are coming also from some of the more marginalised and long ignored parts of the economy, the poor people. And above all else, we need to make sure we actually have a way to get a proper debate and surface innovative ideas going forward. And yes, inevitably, some of the great ideas will be coming from some of the more privileged parts of society who want to defend their own interest. Um, Silicon Valley is immensely privileged, but they do also have lots of fantastic ideas. But it really is now about a system of checks and balances that make sure that just as America has fought for years to have checks and balances in the Constitution legally, we now, in a sense, need social checks and balances which enable all people around the table and all people in society to have a voice. Because one thing we've learnt is that we're linked in a global chain of humanity and a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And a pandemic shows that if the weakest link breaks, we all suffer. And that's going to be true for the future as much as it currently is in the present. And I think that part of what you started with, uh, Gillian, is is like we have parts of our facts and actions in this episode must be having a historic perspective. And just going back to saying, um, you know, like this is, again, not even a new phrase. And this is not a new pandemic. And what are the lessons that we can historically go back to, even in the Hispanic uh, called the, the the Spanish flu, uh, learning how information was denied uh, and, and the government banned actually media to talk about the the pandemic and you know it took it took more than five percent of the world's population and uh, what are the patterns of what that we can be seeing from again from wars and from history. One of the amazing things about the current crisis is that not only does the current generation have a chance to learn from history if it chooses because it has access to so much information on the internet. But also those lessons can flash around the world at a truly astonishing speed 
that would have been unimaginable just five, 10 years ago. So to give you a tangible example of this, various branches of the Federal Reserve have engaged in some astonishing research recently looking at the impact of the 1918 influenza on, say, productivity and growth, what happened in cities which embraced a quick lockdown and those which didn't, but also looking at topics like the the statistical link between um, the Spanish flu and populism and fascism in subsequent decades. This is very controversial research. It's highly to the credit of the different branches of the Federal Reserve that they've even done this research. But what's striking is that they put this research out with an incredible speed, and that's now being read right around the world. So the internet can spread good ideas as well as bad. And we've seen how globalization can create medical contagion. Um, It can also create innovation contagion. And let's hope that that happens as people look back to history, share the ideas, not just with each other, but also with people around the world, and hopefully find a better solution. But that requires having the will to look. Jillian, thank you so much for joining us yet again on Global Goals Cast. You are our favorite guest. I don't know if we're allowed to say that. Well, thank you. And I should say, by the way, it's also having the will to listen. And for that reason, I do salute podcasts like this, which are trying to take these um, messages out to a wider audience. Thank you, Gillian. Let's stay safe and let's stay strong. Thank you all. So to take us out of this episode, I'm going to hand you over now for our signature facts and actions. Today, we are delighted to have Alice McDonald. She's the policy and campaigns director at Project Everyone. So firstly, in the recovery, we have to ensure that no one is left behind, and that's a commitment that underpins the goals. Why is that? Because we know that the most vulnerable are and will continue to be hit the hardest. For example, a recent report predicted that poverty could increase for the first time in three decades, pushing more than half a billion people into poverty. In addition, the UN has predicted at least 15 million more cases of domestic violence, and the number of acutely hungry people worldwide could nearly double. Secondly, we need a holistic approach. The SDGs are unique in that they apply to every country and span a huge range of issues, from development to gender equality to the climate crisis. Carbon emissions have fallen by 6% due to the outbreak and we've seen cleaner air across the world. However, as the UN has warned, that fall is probably only temporary and we have to have a consolidated plan and effort to preserve some of those small gains. Thirdly, we need global cooperation and coordination more than ever. The goals are founded on the principle of partnership and that is very much needed, especially when it comes to finance. One recent estimate is that the cost of protecting the most vulnerable 10% of people in the world's poorest countries is approximately $90 billion. That sounds a lot, but it is equivalent to just 1% of the global stimulus package that the world's richest countries have put in place to save the global economy. So we need the same kind of concerted and consolidated efforts to raise those funds. So what can you do? Firstly, you could campaign and advocate for both the short-term and long-term solutions we need, like universal health coverage, debt relief and social protection measures. One thing you could do right now is donate to the WHO's Global Solidarity Fund. Secondly, you could read Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, a different holistic model for thinking about the economy, which is closely linked to the SDGs. Thirdly, you can join a Global Day of Solidarity on the 22nd of May and send a message that we are stronger together. You can find out more about the day on www.solidarityinaction.org. And if you want to find out more about Project Everyone and the Global Goals campaign in general, please go to www.globalgoals.org. Thanks to Alice McDonald from Project Everyone for those facts and actions. And thank you to our guests in this episode. And thanks to our listeners for listening. Please like and subscribe via iTunes or wherever you listen and follow us on social media. If you don't know it yet, it's at Global Goalscast. See you next time. Adios. Hasta la vista. Ciao. Adios. Global Goalscast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial gurued by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Kuprider. 
and our interns, Brittany Segura, Taryn Reaney, and Dylan Potts. Music in this episode was courtesy of Universal Production Music, one of the world's leading production music companies, creating and licensing music for film, television, advertising, broadcast, and other media, including podcasts. Original music by Neil Hale, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Andrew Phillips. This episode is brought to you by MasterCard, creating scalable solutions for sustainable and inclusive economic growth. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and to BSR, working for a just and sustainable world. The struggle is real, and we know that firsthand being daughters of hardworking immigrants. That's why on La Lucha is Real podcast, hablamos un poquito de todo. Somos Angel and Edith, long-term best friends who have authentic conversations, giving us space to be vulnerable without judgment because La Lucha is real. We want all of our amigos who listen to us to feel a part of the conversation and feel empowered to become a better version of themselves. A veces bromeando y a veces llorando, pero siempre mejorando. La Lucha is Real podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. ¿Estás listo para convertir tus mejores ideas en un negocio en línea exitoso? Te presentamos Shopify. Tal vez no lo sabías, pero nuestro podcast More Than Mammies es un negocio y lo empezamos, por supuesto, para desahogarnos y hablar sobre la maternidad, no para convertirnos en expertas de ventas y del e-commerce. Así que sí, necesitábamos ayuda para vender nuestro merch y poner en marcha nuestra tienda. ¿Y cómo suena con Shopify? Llegó otra venta. Shopify es la plataforma de comercio que está revolucionando millones de negocios en todo el mundo. Ya seas un emprendedor desde tu casa o desde donde sea, Shopify es la única herramienta que necesitas para iniciar, administrar y hacer crecer tu negocio sin dificultades. Con Shopify puedo gestionar pedidos, envíos y pagos desde cualquier lugar, brindándote toda la información y estadísticas de tus ventas al detalle. Regístrate para un periodo de prueba con tan solo un dólar al mes en shopify.com barra sonoro. Todo en minutos. Ve a Shopify.com barra sonoro para llevar tu negocio al siguiente nivel. Shopify.com barra sonoro.